the first uh, 20 years of life trying to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life. And then we get to about 65, and most people, most people retire without a good plan for what they're going to do for the second part of their life after they retire. And uh, I just remember that uh, the whole time that I was working, I was planning what I was going to do in retirement. But that's good coaching for our, our kids and grandkids because they're going to get to that age, and if they don't have a plan, they're going to waste a lot of time and possibly mess up their second act because they never had a plan. But the, st- the time to work on a plan is always when you're young. Great advice. Great advice. Well, in my case, life just stepped in. I had to end up doing things that I've, you know, taken my grandsons to work and and, and my husband stopped driving. So then I had to drive him everywhere he had to go. So life just happened after I stopped working. (laughs) Very interesting. No, Kathy, it's a great, it's a good article. Nice, nice points that... uh, Shared by everybody. <clears throat> I put this in because uh, we discussed this about six months ago, I guess. <clears throat> and uh, uh, we haven't talked about it since. And uh, uh, this did it because of Halloween. But anyway, uh, this is something that you can do. <clears throat> you can become a donor uh, after, in life or after you die. <clears throat> but you can also donate your body to science. And it's interesting to uh, go to some of the ceremonies they have for those people, for the families of those people who left their, donated their bodies. Uh, and uh, some of the most meaningful uh, services I've been to have been those where the medical students celebrate the families of those who donated their bodies to science. Mm. And uh, it's, it's food for thought for people who, uh, aren't able to be used as donors because they die under circumstances that don't allow it, but uh, still have their bodies to be used to help others. So that's just proof of thought uh, for some who may not have thought about it, who can't be donors, uh, but they can donate their bodies to science. Well, I'm glad we were looking at this article because uh, I was wanting a cremation instead of a standard funeral because it's cheaper. But donating my body to science is even cheaper <laughs> because there's, there's no there's no cost at all. Yeah. And, you know, when I when I think about all the young kids that are victims of gunshot violence and there's not life insurance, that's a good solution for their parents too to donate the bodies to science. True. Mm-hmm. Say again. I said some families want grandeur. They they want to, you know, when someone is killed, they want to kind of keep it going. So they they want funerals and and you know, so. Well, they you know the, one of the best things is when they uh, when that happens, they can become donors because. Uh, yeah. Organ and tissue donors. So yeah, that's true. So for thought, uh, you know, one uh, one donor can save eight lives and and mm. and contribute to eighty uh, tissue donations. So that yeah. a lot can be done yeah. uh, after death. They can still have a funeral. 
and you can still have a funeral. That's exactly right. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe if that's put out there more, it, it may catch on. Who knows? Well, we've been trying that for about 40 years, <laughs> and we will keep trying. Keep trying, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what that's MOTEP true. has been all about for since true. 1991. Yeah. 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 Uh, when you donate your body to science, do they want an embalmed body or not embalmed? They usually embalm the body. They will usually embalm it, yeah. Um, Dr. Callender, um, you had told me one point, they can embalm the body, let you have the funeral, and then take the body after the end of the funeral and you still don't pay anything. No, I, what are you talking about? They, they always embalm the body. Yeah, they embalm the body. So while the body is embalmed, they can have the funeral service. And then at the end of the funeral service, it goes to the um, okay to the yeah. hospital. And if people understood that, that they don't have to pay anything to the um, work, that their body is donated to science. They get it embalmed, they can have their Re, uh, funeral services, and then the body goes immediately to the uh, medical facility and no money overhead. I think a lot more people and thinking about it, that is the best way to go. And that way you satisfy everybody. Yeah. At the, at the funeral, do they use a casket or is that a rental casket where yeah. it goes back to the funeral home after the body goes to science? See, that's the one thing, the casket costs money. <laughs> yeah, no, you it doesn't. You can rent yeah. one. You can, you rent, can rent one. Can rent and it. half the time, it's a cardboard thing. I know it happened to my brother. Um, they wanted to do a viewing, and mm -hmm. they chose to cremate him. And mm -hmm. the funeral home offered a casket, which looked normal, but it wasn't. Um, and then after the funeral, he was embalmed and everything, dressed. And after that, he was cremated. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing is to get the funeral home out of your pocket because they will gouge you for every penny you've mm -hmm. got. So if you can somehow avoid using that funeral home whatsoever, and um, you can even make your own programs and call me and I'll run it off for you. But uh, don't use the funeral home under any circumstances, even renting that casket. I bet there's some place where you can rent a casket and then um, don't have to follow that funeral home. Yeah. You know, well, another alternative. Well, be How careful about? with that too, because on TV just this week, they uh, a family rented a casket because they were going to cremate, but the casket had information in it, uh, oh, the funeral yeah. programs, um, um, uh, <laughs> death certificate of the previous person. Someone oh, used no. it. Mm -hmm. And they named the uh, funeral home locally here in this area, and it was on TV. So some funeral homes aren't as um, protective of the information. What you're saying, Carol, sounds great to pass that information on. You don't have to put out that money. And Betty is right. Some people want to do it up big. Mm -hmm. And in the cases of all these young people being shot, and, mm -hmm. you know. They want, they want GoFundMe pages and get money and Exactly. Like mm -hmm. um, but this is even for older people. Um, they don't want someone like Daryl. They don't want someone else getting <laughs> and they want to leave their money behind to people like me 
Not that I'm gonna, Daryl will outlive me anyway, but this is a good way for parents to leave all their money to their children or spend it all up. And then that way, nobody has to pay anything when you die. <laughs> okay. And if you belong to church, you can have it for free. But you gotta belong to a church and pay your tithes and dues. Cause other than that, like if my okay. church decided to raise it a thousand dollars to rent a church out so you can have your funeral there. Mm -hmm. yeah, everything costs. <laughs> so what do they what do they do when they take your body um, to the grave site and then they wait for you all to leave and everything? What do they do? <laughs> don't leave. <laughs> and then don't they use that grave site for somebody else? No. You don't have to go to the grave site because if people are cremated, their people are getting used to it now. Just have the repast, and there's a way you can get that done cheap too. Have a repast, let them all eat, and then go home and say that the body is being disposed of. You don't have to go to the cemetery anymore and pay those high prices. I should write a book and then get <laughs> yes, you should. <laughs> How to die inexpensive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, good morning, everyone. But you know, one concern I have is um, the time that the person deceased and the time period of the body, the um, the process of the body in death, to the time of whether you're gonna whatever stage you're gonna do for preparation, whether it's donation of the body or what. There's a time period of death that you have to meet. Anyone know that time period? Because yeah, well, it's yeah. decomposing. Well, no. As, as soon as the the, it, for example, it happens in the uh, in the uh, hospital, then they immediately put it uh, in the refrigerator. Uh, but if it happens outside and uh, uh, within hour, within an hour, uh, decomposition sets in. So uh, it has to be uh, done in a timely fashion. Otherwise. Uh, a decomposition uh, sets in and uh, uh, everything is destroyed. Right. Uh, because. Um... And for example, for donation for tissues, mm -hmm. uh, you can do that within 24 hours. Uh, for organs, you have to do it within 60 minutes. Uh, mm. Yeah. So. Yeah, but, um, my well, experience. My experience working at a funeral home, I mean, way, way, way back, <laughs> was that the reason people use funeral home was the embalming process. Yes. But like Dr. Callender said, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, I had, he, that gave me a refresher of the time periods that you have to move on it because of the decomposing of the body and coming out the morgue and all that kind of stuff. Uh, because uh, I went to watch, I uh, went to, um, so, so that is a concern that you have to, you have to uh, factor in that, that body decomposing process. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what you're saying, Dr. Callender, is it's much easier when a person passes in a hospital to donate than it is for somebody maybe that would die at home or would be shot or... Well, it depends on whether you want to leave organs or tissues. For organs, you need to have the 
organs within 60 minutes mm -hmm. uh, for tissues, you need 24 hours, within mm -hmm. 24 hours. Okay, if you set up prior arrangements with something like Howard University Hospital to donate your body, can mm -hmm. you have them pick up the body uh, and that way all the refrigeration costs and embalming costs are on Howard? Uh, of course, Howard isn't doing it now, but and as a matter of fact, the only place they're doing it now is um, the VA. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, the Walter Reed. Yeah, was the only place that's doing it now. But uh, yeah, for the most part, I think we. Somebody had asked me that question. I had them uh, communicate with uh, Walter Reed because they were the one that were doing it, especially during the pandemic, because all, all the other places had stopped. Mm. But that is the place around here. I don't know about Illinois, because see, that's a busier city, and you may have more of them, have other universities that are uh, still doing that. The, the uh, pandemic slowed down the number of, uh, before most university hospitals were doing that, but then after the pandemic, a lot of them stopped it. Only, a handful of them continue to do it in different areas. But I don't know about the Chicago area. Yeah. This is interesting. Uh, count your blessings uh, one by one and you fall asleep. Remember that? So yes. count your blessings, <laughs> name them one by one. Yes. Yeah, it's, mm. this is uh, a simple breathing technique that uh, they recommend that uh, will help you fall asleep. Uh, uh, you know, f we take it for granted that you fall asleep easily, but that isn't always the case. And uh, uh, being unable to fall asleep is uh, is, is not not good. I remember whenever you have death, some people. Uh, after they lose someone, they can't sleep. I remember my brother, when he lost his wife, he didn't sleep for a month. Mm -hmm. So uh, and then you realize how, uh, what a difference it makes uh, because your brain does de de decompress and it, uh, it's awful actually. So, and that's why uh, they recommend these breathing exercises because sleep medication is not good for you. Uh, so. I've never tried any of I've been blessed I could always fall asleep. Uh, but the hill through your nose for count of four, hold your breath, count of seven, exhale for count of eight. I don't know anybody, anybody ever tried this? No, I didn't know that before. But I just now I just now tried it since the article's been on the screen. I haven't fallen asleep during the group session yet, but I am more <laughs> relaxed. <laughs> uh, Dr. Calder, why did you say uh, sleep medicine is not good for you? Well, they have side effects, that's all. Uh, oh. Some of the sleep medicine doesn't. If you have a sleep medicine that doesn't have side effects, it's probably okay. Although, but many of the sleep medications have side effects. Some of them, you uh, hallucinate. Some you uh, go to sleep and you walk around and do all kinds of strange things. And so, uh, I, I just say that if you wanted to take a sleep medicine for a night or so, 
but for over a long period of time, it's uh, it's unwise to rely uh, to sleep on sleep medication. That's my feeling about it. Uh, now, psychiatrists and psychologists still uh, prescribe sleep medication for a short while for period for people who uh, can't fall asleep. So, mm -hmm. and for those people. It's probably okay for a short-term rest. But I had a number of my transplant patients who, uh, after they took the sleeping medicine, they went up cooking and doing all kinds of things, <laughs> and driving and all kinds of things, and they didn't even know it. And Ooh. so there are side effects from some of the sleeping medications. So uh, if you took some for sleep and it didn't have side effects, that would be okay for a short-term. But I think for a long-term, it's not uh, good for you. Any uh, your thoughts about it? Any comments about that? Um, when we start yoga, <clears throat> uh, we do this uh, intentional breathing practice, and it helps to relax all your muscles. Um, by, by the end of an hour of yoga, your body's really, really relaxed. But the uh, the the process at at the very end. Or you're just lying there. You you end up going to going to sleep a lot of times uh, because uh, your your parasympathetic nervous system is uh, activated during the practice. But um, we start off, like I said, with with total uh, as best you can relaxation. Even that uh, single nostril breathing that they talked about, they they do that. Uh, to help know that you have control. Otherwise, I mean, who who thinks about your your, your breath? You know, you, it's it's part of you. you. You don't even think about it. That's when, true. You, when you work on controlling it, uh, you find out that you do have have power over it, and you can use it to uh, to prepare for exercise and to w wind down after exercise. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, scroll down some more. Let's see what else. Well, it's interesting that uh, breathing can be used effectively for not only for combating insomnia, but other things. Now, the other thing that sometimes those sleep medications do, they, they produce hypnosis. <laughs> and uh, that isn't all that funny either. I had patients complaining about the uh, melatonin and other things like that that also uh, produces some degree of hypnosis. And that wasn't funny either for some people. Melatonin. I know with my mother, we had to stop her from taking Amien because she was having hallucinations. Yes. Oh, yes. That is, <laughs> Ambien is well known for that. Yeah. And hallucinations. <laughs> doing all kinds of things that you aren't aware of while you're sleeping. Yeah, so. What did you say? You melatonin. Melatonin also has side effects. The melatonin is a hormone that's produced by the body. And uh, that's used to treat insomnia as well. But it's not tolerated by everyone to say. Melatonin. I don't know melatonin. Now this is a this is a, probably the 
second or third article, we had about sleeping five hours or less, uh, uh, causing uh, chronic diseases. Uh, and uh, for those in, in medicine who have sleep habits, it uh, uh, is something that we deal with all the time, and it's not good. And uh, it affects your ability to perform. Uh, one of the things is when you do something repetitively, uh, you can almost do it in your sleep. And, uh, uh, and so you get used to short hours of sleep, but it's not healthy. And this is a long laundry list of diseases that is associated with sleeping less than five hours on life. And uh, I think that this is something we looked at before, but you can take a brief time. It's interesting how, how children sleep so long. Mm -hmm. Hello. Hi. At the, at the, Did you realize that it slept this long? I didn't realize it. You seen um yeah when the first month. Yeah. Oh, he's in the date. That's all right. Don't remember here. Okay. Yeah. I tell him they break. At the top of this article it showed a couple people sleeping in bed. And uh, what I noticed is that the pillows were sitting up pretty high, uh, which is a great idea. You know, the guy's a back sleeper, obviously. The woman's a side sleeper, which is better because she's smarter. But I went to an ENT doctor this week, uh, Monday, for my snoring, and he says, um, just get a higher pillow. So I got an uh, anti-snoring pillow from Amazon that's shaped like a wedge, and um so that cured my snoring. I don't snore anymore. Interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting. I know your fiance is happy. Yeah. Well, yeah, because she's still snoring. She didn't get the high pillow uh, like mine. <laughs> Not only that, we had a doctor come on and tell us what the best sleeping position is. And she said, Sleeping on your right side was the best sleeping position. Well, uh, when the ENT did my examination, he was looking at to uh, see if I had any deviated nasal septums. And, um, and so I could see on the screen what he was looking at on the, on the scope. He had it on the TV screen. And um, he said, because I didn't have any deviation, but the left side of my nasal passage was a little smaller than my right side. So he suggested that uh, when I sleep on the left side, uh, which has been my preference, that that's the best for me because gravity um, uh, causes, uh, if I sleep on my left side, it, it causes that air passage to open up a little more. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it best suits me for the way that my nasal structure is built. Yeah, I think this doctor that came on, she said, in general, left side sleeping is the best. Right, but uh, I, I know anatomically, when you look at the way the GI tract is formed, that actually, uh, uh, if you, especially if you eat before you go to bed, uh, sleeping on the right side is better for your 
in digestion, better for your digestive processes. But uh, I think right side or left side, as, as Daryl is pointing out, it, it varies on your own anatomy. I personally have worked with uh, patients with intestinal obstruction and other problems and uh, have to put down tubes for patients who uh, weren't able to digest their food. And uh, uh, the right side worked well for them, but I think it, it, it varies a lot. So, so the so side I is better. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, opt for telling anybody which side because it, it varies. Just as Daryl said with his anatomy, it, it, the left side is better. But, uh, some people, the right side might be better as well. Flat is uh, the one thing about pillows. The people who require pillows, it makes you think about the uh, need for uh, uh, think about heart disease because also uh, one of the advantages, one of the things that happens when you have heart disease, you have to have two pillows in order to uh, sleep because uh, your heart is not uh, pumping out fluids. Uh, adequately so the the side is better than your back is that what you're saying Either for many side. people for most people for most people now as as daryl has mentioned there are other reasons there are many other reasons some people have back problems some people have other problems so so uh, i think side works for for many people mm. uh, and, uh, uh it's interesting to hear how that uh, the pillow works so well for him. Uh, mm -hmm. I just okay. use a CPAP machine. Okay. Ah. Perlene, you need to mute. There you go. Yeah, I, I use a CPAP machine. Um, stop my snoring. Well, that's the treatment of choice for sleep at obstructive sleep apnea. That's what I had. Yeah. yeah with, with my doctor's exam, he said I wasn't likely uh, to have sleep apnea because I didn't experience any uh, loss of energy, tiredness during the day. Uh, looked When he looked at my uh, anatomy, I didn't have things like an enlarged tonsil or uh, any uh, larynx problems. And so he said, you know, you probably don't have sleep apnea. I just recommend a higher pillow or the breathe right strips across your nose. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. You're right. Because people with sleep apnea, they, they're exhausted all the time because they, their oxygen level drops, uh, which makes them uh, unhealthy and causes hypertension and other things. So, yeah. What? what Was there a comment? Yes. Um, going back to uh, another discussion we just recently had about um, there are a lot of variables and it depends on each individual. Uh, one thing we discussed in another article is not going to bed on a full stomach. So those are other variables that we want to consider in getting a good night's sleep and making sure that your uh, water intake is not all at night, is not when you get ready to go to bed because you know you'll be up all night between you and your friend in the bathroom. And the last thing I wanna say is that you have to make sure that you're eating those right nutritional foods because 
you got uh, one of the things that is recommended that you have to eat foods that make sure you get your calcium, your chromium, your copper, your magnesium, your vitamin B complex, your vitamin B1, vitamin B, E, and zinc. So you have to make sure you're eating those superfoods and those foods that you need uh, to get that good night's sleep, as well as, of course, we say now the seven pillars of health. Okay. Um, this article talks about, we talked about BMI. <clears throat> this article uh, talks about how waist hip ratio uh, is better than BMI for predicting uh, mortality risk in obese patients. And it's interesting because we talked, we haven't talked recently about it, but we've talked before about the fact that uh, uh, having a fat butt is better than having a fat belly. And uh, uh, some people feel that uh, uh, black women have fat butts and that's healthy and uh, the fat belly isn't. And so the waist to hip ratio uh, becomes an issue. And that's a measuring your circumference uh, between the waist and the hip uh, rather than uh, measuring uh, your weight and your height. Uh, so there's a number of uh, concerns in which they do both, the waist to, waist to the hip, uh, as well as uh, uh, BMI. Uh, but waist to height ratio considered uh, is, is thought to be a different, uh, uh, a different issue because it, uh, it, they say it correlates more with with uh, whether you're gonna die from obesity than anything else. Uh, now this is interesting because I think uh, we actually did the uh, research project and we did both, but <clears throat> we didn't really look for a difference. And we actually used for the most part the BMI. But this is interesting that this shows a better relationship. Of course, that uh, what they're looking for is how it is associated with death rather than anything else. And they talk about that the visceral adiposity, which is fat bellies, is more common among men compared with the uh, women who have big, big butts. So. Dr. Calendar, I um, developed uh, a, a fat belly, even though I'm not, you wouldn't consider me fat, but I have a fat belly. I was, um, and it, it just happened out of nowhere, you know. Uh, I'm wondering, do you have any, any advice for a fat belly? Well, the question, the first question is, uh, uh, what is your BMI? Uh, then, the next question is, what are the exercises that you can do to uh, uh, decrease a, a fat belly? And uh, there's some that are recommended. And uh, I guess uh, we can look those up. But there are some exercises that are recommended for decreasing the, the belly. Yeah, I used to be an inning, and now I'm an outie. <laughs> what is your BMI? I think it's 30. 31. Oh, so you're overweight. Okay. 
<laughs> no, I, no, no, I'm sorry. You're obese. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm 25 to 30 is overweight. I'm over 30. 30, over 30 is you're parked on the deck and you're driving. I'm over 15 pounds lighter than I was a year ago. Because I started walking and back to swimming. So my my weight has gone down. So I haven't I haven't really checked it lately. But I'm probably 30. Okay. All right. But they, they are still exercises for the belly. Well, I have to look them up again. Well, so, I would think that... The two usual suspects are going to be bread and sugar. I really don't do bread. I have a, I have a roll every now and then, but I, I don't do sliced bread at all. And now, I, I stopped doing sugar a year ago. Um. This is an article that talks about the fact that cancer rates are decreasing, which means uh, that some of the things we're doing uh, are working. Now, the question is, uh, uh, what are those things? Uh, and there are many things uh, uh, that are working, and that is the exercise, the uh, nutritional efforts, and then of the, the many uh, breakthroughs in cancer therapies, uh, the uh, uh, immunologic drugs that we now have, uh, have been effective in uh, decreasing deaths from melanoma and, uh, and some lung cancers. Uh, so that, and then of course, we're paying attention to uh, foods we eat, exercise and other things. So, uh, at least in this country, for a few people are, are smoking. Uh, but uh, when I go, when haven't been to Europe recently, but when I was in Europe, uh, they smoked a lot more than Americans, and still mm. far too many Americans are still smoking. Yeah, <laughs> and it's interesting that uh, the Native Americans still have uh, highest rate, higher rates of cancer, and uh, it's. It's a population in this country that uh, has been relatively ignored. Uh, and it's a, it's a population that we need to pay more attention to. But it does appear that the screenings and, and attention to the elimination of processed foods, uh, as well as the immunotherapy for cancer, which has developed and has been successful over time, is demonstrating itself in the lower deaths from cancer. But uh, still, Blacks have more cancer. Uh, the rate of uh, deaths from cancer is higher in Blacks than it is in other populations other than the Native Americans. Blacks and Native Americans still have that uh, issue. Wow. And the question is why? There have been many uh, ideas, but one of the commonest is one advanced by Harold Freeman, who won the Alaska Prize for uh, pointing out the social determinants of health and pointing thinks that the problem is that we get to the doctor too late 
and the diagnosis of cancer is made later for us than it is for other people. And so the social determinants of health play a major role in that. This article points again that uh, uh, death rates across all age groups continue to go down. And I think this is uh, good. I think lung cancer, melanoma, that's where they decrease the most. And uh, that's good, but they still uh, have too many cancer deaths. Still lung and breast cancer are still in the top. We have so many women dying of breast cancer. Dr. Wilson, our breast cancer specialist, died two weeks ago, breast cancer. Pancreatic cancer, however, is a cancer for which we do less well than other cancers. Uh, uh, pancreatic cancers, we don't do very well in terms of having five and 10 year survivals. It's interesting, leukemia deaths have uh, decreased. And uh, part of this, and we do have <clears throat> more treatments for, for, uh, for leukemia now than we did before. It is disturbing that the, there's an increase in breast, colorectal, and testicular cancers in young adults. And uh, this is why colonoscopy has, the age for colonoscopy has dropped down to 45, unless you have high risk where it can go down to 40. Uh, the alarming breast cancer death rate for us, for black women, is something that uh, we still have much work to do about because uh, far too many black women are dying from breast cancer. And far too black, far too few black women are having uh, the appropriate screening, breast cancer screening. And that's something we have to work at as well. But cancer still is second behind heart disease as the number two cause of death uh, in America. And uh, we point to systemic racism as a uh, major factor. It says, as Dallas uh, mentioned before, uh, where you live, urban living is, uh, allows you to be polluted with, polluted with uh, things that actually cause cancer. So these are all factors. Any comments or questions about that? Yeah. Dr. Calder, can I go back to another thing that we just talked about just for a second? Um, the fat belly, um, is, isn't that caused somewhat by the, uh, the muscles in the stomach deteriorating somewhat? I mean, not deteriorating, but loss of muscular in the stomach area. Well, uh, there's, there's some probably that that's probably not the major uh, contributor, but uh, certainly there are muscular exercises that are recommended for uh, uh, overcoming the uh, 
fat belly. Because the muscular deterioration certainly occurs uh, as you age. So there's little question about that. But whether or not that is the major reason why you have a fat belly is another question. I don't think that's the answer, but let's, let's uh, talk more about it next week, I guess, to do some research on that, about the fat belly. I'll make a note of that. Okay. Uh, RSV vaccine data. Uh, there's hope, as you know, the children's hospitals are filled with <coughs> children with RSV, the respiratory virus. <coughs> and uh, it's, it's already, the, it has already taken over many of the children's hospitals already. Yeah. And, and actually, it was there weren't weren't any vaccines that were effective, but now uh, there is a study that shows that vaccination may help. So, so this is something that our future will will help us with. Uh, it occurs in older adults too, but it's just that uh, it's uh, it's certainly dangerous for us older adults, but it's also uh, dangerous for the younger kids. Um, but before this time, there really was a vaccine for it. So this is a, uh, a new development that can be helpful. Dr. Callender, I have a, a, a close friend that works at the uh, Children's National Medical Center over on Michigan Avenue. And uh, she said that they have beds out in the hallways from this yeah totally packed right now right in most children's hospitals everywhere have the same problem <clears throat> isn't that interesting that uh, 58,005 hospitals each year 700 die and 14,000 die adults, not the large number associated with the flu, but still significant. <coughs> Worldwide kills about 100,000 children a year. Why is there no vaccine? Well, <laughs> that's an interesting question. You know, when we have a vaccine, we're thrilled to have it. Uh, this this is an interesting experiment that they did in the 1960s. They found that not only was the vaccine not protective, but uh, some people died after the vaccine. So after that, they kind of slowed down. So uh, now we're back at it again. So we'll see what happens. Dr. Callender, uh, during um, our youth, there was an outbreak of the, um, I think it was what, whooping cough? Yes, pertussis. Yeah, is this related? No, that's no, completely different. Yeah, whooping cough is something that is kind of because of uh, 
uh, medication, that okay. vaccine. Because we have a vaccine after pertussis. It's just about knocked it out. <clears throat> but RSV is different. So I guess we're all hopeful that uh, the, the data will show that they have a RSV vaccine that is helpful and not harmful. So, so we await that. But it looks like it's more dangerous for us older folks than it is for the kids. <clears throat> Interesting, they talk, at least nowadays, they have more uh, studies on women. Uh, I think what was different about the uh, coronavirus vaccine was that they overemphasized the importance of the minority population. And so the question is, are they doing the same thing for this uh, RSV vaccine? There was, a, along those lines, an interesting article in the Washington Post that talked about <clears throat> this uh, group called the Million Veteran Program, in which uh, they had they have the largest database for uh, Black people in the world. And uh, these are all veterans who uh, agreed to send their information and it'd be accumulated in a, a VA uh, data bank, genetic data bank. And so uh, when uh, you talk about uh, areas where they have data on black genetic issues, this may be the largest in the world, even larger than the NIH one. Uh, and it has probably has more blacks in it than anyone else because most of the veterans are actually uh, many of the veterans actually are black. So, uh, so when we have issues that uh, cause us to be, have concerns about uh, uh, issues like we haven't talked about the APL uh, uh, gene, uh, but that is uh, something that is common in the African American population and causes kidney disease, particularly in those people who have uh, HIV. Uh, and uh, also in coronavirus, apparently. Uh, so, because you find more people with coronavirus who have kidney disease who are black than other ethnicities. So it's nice to know that there is there are some uh, genetic banks outside, out in this country and outside of this country uh, that uh, have genetic uh, uh, material that can help us answer some of these questions. <clears throat> now, this is something that makes sense to me, you know, uh, getting COVID vaccines to routine immunization uh, down the road when we know a little bit more about it. Uh, right now, to me, I think it's a little early because we still aren't sure how often we're going to need to be vaccinated. It's right now, we're doing booster shots every six months. How, how long will that be necessary? Uh, will, when will it expand to once a year? Uh, so far, it hasn't done that. But there's, 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 there's likely that down the road, 
this will actually occur. So it's not something that is mandated now, but it's something that uh, is food for thought and something that uh, uh, we need when we have the data available, which we do not have now, uh, that may be something that we will add, not only to childhood immunization, but to adult immunizations. So that, so that we will be getting the flu vaccine annually and maybe also the coronavirus vaccine uh, annually as well. But right now we, we don't have the information. We do know that they have the lowest rates of hospitalization and death from COVID. We know that, but we don't know some of the other answers to questions. And we know that COVID is an ongoing pro uh, problem. Uh, we, we don't know what's gonna happen this, this fall, but the fall is here. <clears throat> As I go to event, indoor events, <clears throat> I see fewer and fewer people wearing masks and paying attention to uh, social distancing. And so it's gonna be interesting to watch and see what's gonna happen. Now, this is something that we knew was going to happen. Uh, $110 to $130 for drugs for the COVID vaccine. Once the United States government purchasing program ends, <clears throat> which is likely to happen next year. And so what will that do to the uninsured or uninsured? Uh, that's uh, interesting. Here we go back to the issue of uh, uh, not having health care as a as a right, which it isn't. So, and this this will then impact upon the uh, minority communities disproportionately. Let's go to the next one. This is this is an interesting article that talks about the fact that uh, those of us who have side effects from the COVID vaccine. Uh, it's interesting, some people do and some people don't. Uh, but they are saying that if your body has a great antibody response, then that means that your immune system is, is uh, affected positively by the, by the vaccine. And therefore it should work better for those people who have side effects. Uh, suggesting that those people who don't have any side effects may not be impacted at all, but I don't think there's enough data to, to, uh, to, to say whether or not, if you don't have a reaction, that you don't have uh, a good response to the vaccine. But uh, we, there certainly is evidence that if you have side effect, that your, your, your vaccine uh, response is, uh, is good. But the other way, I'm not sure about, because I do know a number of people who have no response to the vaccine in terms of side effects. While the majority of people do have some side effects, some people have none. Any comment about it? Any of you who've had the uh, vaccine and the boosters who have no side effects? I've had five shots, no side effects. Interesting, interesting. Anybody else with no side effects? Side effects? Me, no side effects. Wow. Well, my, my only side effects is just a sore arm at the at the injection site. Me too. Yeah, yeah. mine is sore arm and 
just tiredness. Yes, yeah. same here. Um, right. Full yeah. arm and tired. Well, I just went to bed. <laughs> yeah, okay. and me too. I was tired for three days, but I stayed positive for eleven. Um, yeah. Well, that's kind of interesting to look at the population who has no side effects at all and see what that means. We don't know what it means yet. We do know that uh, those people who have side effects, that it's a positive response and that uh, it's, it means that the vaccine is eliciting the appropriate immune response. Dr. Count, I had absolutely no side effects whatsoever. And I thought that that was because I have so many other uh, comorbidities that I wouldn't even know. I don't think it's the, it's the comorbidities, it's the medications you're taking to prevent rejection. That's probably why you don't have the side effects. The other patients, some of the other patients that I know who don't have side effects are on prednisone or other immunosuppressive medication. So that's another reason why you, you wouldn't have side effects. And no injection site problems either. It's even more suggestive of the impact of prednisone and the immunosuppressive medication. Yeah. The injection site should have caused a problem, but that didn't even cause a problem. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think it's different for patients who are immunosuppressed. But again, they need to do more studies on that to prove it. Yeah. So early counts of flu are already breaking records, but uh, let's hope that that does not continue to be the case. So already 880,000 flu cases, 360 deaths from flu already. Uh, so let's... Uh, Let's get the flu vaccine if, if you can. So, so because it is, it doesn't necessarily stop from getting the flu, but it it decreases the likelihood of hospitalizations and death. So, so those of you who haven't gotten the flu vaccine yet, you might want to get. Doctor Calder, I got my flu shot um, Monday. Um, now. Is there any special flu shot for people over 65? Yes, there is. And you have to specifically ask for it. I've said that on at least five occasions. I know. I had a little debate with my wife about that. Uh, the thing you about it is I didn't know whether it was a double or just a different type of vaccine. There's a special vaccine for older people. Oh, my goodness. What do I do now? Well, you just asked. Ask whoever vaccinated you if they gave you the, the uh, older at your how old are you? 65? Yeah, I told I told him that I'm supposed to get a special one. He said, No, no, no. You just get the same one everybody gets. So well that's uh where at your where are you located? I'm over here at the uh, future care capital region rehabilitation center. So do they have a lot of older people there? Yes, they do. So they may, that may have been the vaccine that they got, but it is a special vaccine for older people. Oh, and okay. It's double the dose of the normal vaccine. And uh, uh, I, I got my vaccine last Saturday and I, I asked particularly for that vaccine and that's what they gave me. 
Okay, I'll check backwards. Yeah, because it's a double dose. Okay. And for all of you who are gonna get the flu, always ask for that uh, dose for the older people. This is an interesting finding uh, that uh, people who had uh, COVID, uh, they don't have the virus in the heart. So that uh, they could be donors for heart transplant. This is something that they found out now. At the time, we didn't know it. So uh, if you were positive for COVID, you were not accepted as a donor. But now they're saying that uh, uh, that if you had COVID, that uh, the heart is not infected. So, of course, we know that they they've done lung transplants after the uh, person whose uh, lungs were destroyed by by COVID were removed and replaced by. Uh, COVID negative uh, donors, and, and they were successful in some cases. Uh, so it, it looks like the, what we now know is that the COVID hearts can be used. Uh, uh, we didn't know that then, but we know it now. So uh, it's, it's surprising evidence because I would have thought differently, but. Uh, But that's the case. Now, would you want, would you be willing to accept the COVID uh, positive heart? Uh, I don't know, but uh, the data is indicating that uh, they are safe. So. And, and as they say, this is the bottom line. Long as studies are needed and the study size is still small. Yeah, well, do the heart transplant first and then treat the COVID after that. Well, it looks like they, they don't need to, the hearts have done well, so they need it. Uh, well, we, we live and learn as we uh, uh, go. This is something that we just, learn now, but uh, in the future, uh, we, we, we now know that the COVID donors can, positive donors can give a heart. Okay. Dr. Dr. Just, just a question about that, because the heart is like right next to the, right next to the lungs and, you know, the heart gets its uh, refreshed blood from the from the lungs, the oxygenated blood, it, it would seem like uh, the the heart would be affected, but this study says it's not. That's correct. Hmm. And we, we but it, it also says the number of, of data that we have is small, and the, the long term survival is absent. So we'll need more data to confirm this. But so far, that's what the data is indicating. Alrighty. Oh, I, okay. I wanted this included because uh, 
if there if you've been to Africa in the last month, you need to be wary of the fact that uh, Ebola virus has resurfaced in Uganda and in the Congo. And so, if you've been to visited the the uh, Africa in the last month, it's important that you be aware of this. Now, here's the problem with Ebola: uh, there's no vaccine and there's no real treatment. So. Uh, Travel history is important. And so if you've traveled in there, uh, incubation periods of three weeks is recommended. Uh, uh, Ebola is not something that we've had here in the United States and we hope not to have it. Uh, but it has been in Africa and Uganda and in the Congo uh, for since 1976, as you can see here. Uh, So any of you visited Africa in the last month? Okay, well, uh, you're safe. Now, here's what the problem is. The problem is that, you know, before all of this airport transportation, you know, you got a disease in, in one area, stayed there. Now with flights here, there, and everywhere, uh, you can get a disease occurring in Africa today and the United States tomorrow. So uh, this is why. Uh, air travelers from Uganda to Congo uh, have to be quarantined, actually. Is there any way to prevent the uh, spread of the virus of this one? No, well, the only way is quarantining. And uh, there's no vaccine. And there's really no treatment. So, so keeping them away from people is probably best thing to do. And if somebody's visited Africa and the, not just Africa, but because Africa is a huge continent, but in the, the countries of, of Uganda and the Congo, uh, then uh, those people probably should be isolated for some time after arrival. I just put this because saying we have a, a diversity of people who uh, attend our session and some people may be traveling to Africa or not, but keep in mind that uh, that this is a, a disease that so far has been limited to the uh, Uganda and the Congo. But the key thing is there's no vaccine. Uh, we, don't, we haven't developed a real effective treatment for this disease. So avoiding contact is the only thing we can do now. Okay. Yeah. Um... So con contact meaning uh, uh, physical or... I think any secretions from okay. these people. So if if you're in the airport and you have a mask on, you should be okay, or chef yeah, as long as no, you, yes, you'd be okay. But uh, if you have any contact with their secretions, that's an issue, uh, and that's why the travel history is the really the only clue, unless you've had close contact with somebody who had uh, the virus. But going through the airport just the breathing 
would not be sufficient. Okay. Um, this is the last one, uh, John? Yeah, okay. Sure. Any other topics? Now we know we have to look up uh, fat belly for next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.